0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SupChina access and you get all that and much more with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China. From the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We are sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, just a mile or so from my home. Now, we've done a number of shows looking at the protests that broke out in the spring of this year in Hong Kong over the proposed extradition law amendment bill protests, which have morphed and continued all the way up to the present. We've had Anthony Dapperan on to give us a picture of the protests on the ground and to help us situate them in the history of protest movements in Hong Kong. Uh, we've also had Jude Blanchette talking about his conversations with the leaders of this nominally leaderless movement. And about the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which was passed by both houses of Congress and signed into law by President Trump last month. And we've talked to Jerome Cohen, who helped to frame the Hong Kong protests through the lens of the law. Today, we're going to look at some facets of the protests we haven't really examined yet, As you doubtless know, in November, violence spread onto the campuses of some of Hong Kong's best-known universities. While the focus has tended to be on Hong Kong Polytechnic and the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and to some extent on HKUST, we didn't hear much at all about what was happening at HKU, where today's guest teaches. Alejandro Reyes, Al as I know him, is an associate professor at the University of Hong Kong. He manages Asia Global Online, the digital journal of the Asia Global Institute, an HKU-based think tank that provides Asian perspectives on global issues. Prior to joining the Institute, he was for two years Senior Policy Advisor to Canada's Assistant Deputy Minister for Asia-Pacific. From 2007 to 2017, he was an Associate Professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at HKU. We've known each other for nearly 20 years, mainly through the World Economic Forum. Al is in town to give a talk at the University of North Carolina, UNC, and I thought I'd grab him for a podcast about what's happening in Hong Kong and uh, what the prospects are for Hong Kong's future. Al, Al Reyes, welcome to Seneca.
1: Thank you very much, Kaiser. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Yeah, delighted uh, that the stars aligned and you could be yes. here. Oh, yes, yeah, great. Yeah, it's good to see you. I mean, you're no longer coming to Davos. and uh...
1: No, so um, Hong Kong for me now. Okay, uh, well. I escaped the uh, cold of Ottawa. And, uh, right, and last Davos. time I saw you was up there in Ottawa. Yeah. <laughs> yes,
0: freezing. Boy, wow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway before we jump in let's talk a little bit about the perch that you've had over the last couple of years since coming back to Hong Kong after that stint in the cold of, of Ottawa uh, so you left Canada um, in May yeah okay and then you had actually you'd gone from Hong Kong before that after occupy uh, and the uh, and the umbrella movement so you came back in plenty of time to also see this round of protests yes. you know germinate and grow
1: yes in fact um, uh, it's, I, I was just right on time, as it were. Because yeah. I, I started work back at Hong Kong U on, uh, the 2nd of May. And of course, uh, you know, May 4 is the so-called start of the protest season in Hong Kong. Right. For obvious reasons. And then it goes into June 4th, of course, and then July 1. And then we have a summer through till October 1. So the, the protest season, as it were. Uh, uh, goes on that long, and, and uh, as you know, the protests in Hong Kong have escalated in terms of the violence. It started out quite peaceful, and then, uh, as you know, we had to le- we had about um, you know marches where there were supposedly a million people, of one that was almost two million people, although I think the real numbers were far less. And then, as the situation escalated, with police having a very tough line and then the protesters retaliating the violence was stepped up until we hit that period that you just talked about. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It was the middle of November of last month where a number of the campuses of the universities in Hong Kong were taken over or occupied if you will by protesters and then there were pitched battles particularly the worst of the of the violence was in Chinese U and in Polytechnic University.
0: That's right. Well, before we get to to what happened on the campuses, though, uh, even before all of that, before the siege at Hong Kong Polytechnic, before all of that was happening at Chinese University as well, um, you wrote an op-ed back in mid-November for the yes. SCMP uh, and were worried at that time that escalating levels of violence by protesters, and to be fair, they say that theirs was a response to escalating yes, police course. violence. Yes. Uh, you, you said that was inevitably going to erode Popular support for the protests, Beijing it seems was counting on that happening as well. They were counting on the silent majority turning out. Uh, It seems they were caught pretty flat-footed by the results of the district elections, uh, where the pro-Beijing politicians were pretty soundly routed. Are you feeling differently now about the impact of the violence and vandalism on the solidarity of the movement?
1: Um, I go back and forth on this. You know, uh, so so my perspective is this: I taught at Hong Kong U before I went to Canada. I, I taught there for. Ten years, so I have about two thousand five hundred former students, and I keep in touch with about uh, twenty of them on a regular basis. And I go to the protests to observe, and then I communicate with my students to try to understand what's going on. And I have been concerned that as the protests became more violent, that many of my students were saying, "Well." they were willing to accept the violence, that the, you know, even though it was starting to disturb a lot of people and a lot of my friends. Now, the question you ask is, well, what about the real extent of the support uh, as, as the violence has, has ramped up, right? And, and um, is there a silent majority that is now maybe for the protests, but against the protests that are violent? Right. And I think that that exists. There are, are those who say, "Well, when you had the district council elections, where you had a, a massive shift away from the independent and pro Beijing parties that had controlled seventy-five percent of the district council seats in the in, before, all the way to exactly the opposite. Basically, the pro democracy parties now will control almost eighty percent of the of the seats. Uh, that 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 showed that there's no silent majority that the." Uh, protesters who uh, even at the, with the violence are uh, have have this massive support of what 70 80% of the right. population this is what the many of protesters that i know they 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 continue to insist that the support they have is about 70 80%. Mm-hmm. Now i've seen um, polling uh, that says has a bit of a different story. I won't say where where this polling come from I, I can vouch for the professionalism of this polling but polling that was done particularly in hong kong speaking to hong kong people cantonese speakers and with a good sample size, so professionally done, and this was taken in October, and it showed that about forty-two percent of the respondents supported the protests, even with the violence. That's quite a bit lower, I think, than the seventy percent that the protesters generally talk about—seventy, eighty percent.
0: Still not insubstantial. Not
1: insubstantial by any means, and and, and by no means, right? It, and but this was taken in October before the real. Um, heavy days yeah. in November, and so the expectation is that uh, the numbers have probably gone below forty percent. Uh, I would suspect. Now, okay, this past weekend you had, you know, we, there was a lull. There's been a lull in the protests after the district council elections, after that uh, spell of violence in the universities. And then, after the passing and signing into law of the U.S. Hong Kong Human Rights Demo- and Democracy Act, that there was a bit of a lull in the protests. And then this past weekend, you had another set of protests where, apparently, according to the organizers, you had eight hundred thousand people show up. Now, the police estimated only about one hundred and eighty thousand turned up. So the real number is probably somewhere in between. In between that, now. There was some violence. You saw some vandalism of the court of final appeal. You saw some vandalism over in the in the high court, but it was generally peaceful. Right now, right. does that mean that that level of support that that it's still nearing one million? If you believe the eight hundred thousand, I don't know. I mean, I it, it, again, it's very hard to fully assess the polling that generally is done by universities in Hong Kong is not very uh, sophisticated polling. So again, it's very difficult to get a sense. I would say, though, that the level of support for the violence uh, has really gone down. I mean, Mm. there was... Yes, I think at the beginning there were many who said, well, violence is in some ways necessary in in this case because the chips are down and and the protesters are are desperate and and this is the only recourse or they won't get anything unless they... Really get the attention of the government, and the government was not responding to the five demands, right? right. And but I think that particularly after the takeover of the universities, that there has been a kind of rethinking of the situation, and I think that they have lost support, and probably are the the district councils and the protests this weekend are not really an indication that you know they they have that kind of massive seventy eighty hmm. percent. Full support.
0: Yeah. What do you think was the impact of that decision taken quite early on to encourage no splitting, no criticism of other parts of the movement, including those who who would embrace violence? Was that does that account for a lot of the sustained support for the movement despite its escalation?
1: From the people who were protesting and who generally go out to participate in the protests, whether or not they're legal or illegal, yes. When I talk to protesters, that's the th- there are three things that they underscore, they, they emphasize. One is the leaderless quality of this movement. And these are lessons that they learned from the Occupy protester five years ago. If you have a leaderless movement, then it's difficult for the authorities to sort of take round on up, the leaders yeah. and then run up leaders and then you lose momentum. Uh, the second thing is this idea of unity. It's very important to stick together. And the, and they didn't have that unity five years ago, and then they got nothing. That's the lesson they learned. And then the third part is exactly what you talked about. You know, no criticism of other parts of the movement, of what different parts of the movement might be doing. And so that's why, you know, they do a lot of this voting on actions uh, using the Reddits and uh, Lee Kung. And and these um, platforms to just take on proposals of things they can do, and then their votes on, on it, and then you know, th- and there's no there's no criticism or oh, don't do that or don't do this, and
0: so they're using Leninist democratic centralism it, it,
1: exactly. But it, but <laughs> well, exactly. But it it does create uh, you know this whole be water concept. Right. right. It does make it difficult for people to understand exactly what the protesters want beyond the you know the five demands not one less but also uh, it, it it makes it difficult for people particularly the government that want to have conversations with that may want to have conversations with the protests to have any negotiations right how do you get a political solution if you don't know who will be across the table from you now i personally feel that this idea of leaderlessness i think it's a bit of a cop-out to say oh the movement is leaderless, and therefore it's difficult for us to have conversations. There are conversations that are going on in Hong Kong uh, between different parts of the community and the protesters, just because the government may not be doing all that much in terms of they did they had one session i believe a government outreach, but there have been different community wide conversations. Run by civil society groups, there was a one with youth groups at the end of November, and there's smaller conversations that are going on, certainly in the campuses. I know in Hong Kong U, I've participated in small family conversations that we call them. Yeah, tell us
0: about those. Yes. Let's move, you know, to the subject of what's happening on the universities, and maybe before we talk about the family conversations that you 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 got into. Can you maybe give some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the the geography and the reputations of the different schools a, a little bit of a primer on uh, the different schools that were involved in the protests and how they were affected so differently and, and maybe the reasons why
1: okay um, we have Hong Kong has 13 institutions of higher learning and I think it's eight universities now the most prominent i I guess i can put it that way uh universities are the university of hong kong where i teach is uh is the oldest one it's uh over 100 years old and then there's of course chinese university of hong kong now university of hong kong is in a hong kong island uh sort of perched on a hill and so it's much more compact Mm -hmm. geographically than, than than the rest of them chinese U. Is on the uh, in the new territories in a much more sprawling sort of campus, so mm-hmm. that was uh, one of the reasons why it was much more susceptible, if you will, to to the protests. And then you have Hong Kong Baptist University and Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Now those were two others that were very heavily involved, or sort of in, uh, where there were a lot of protests uh, or protesters had gathered, and they're more sort of urban. Setting you know, universities uh, in in urban settings in the Kowloon side, and therefore, again, all all these universities are are, are kind of cheek, but buildings are all cheek by jowl. So right. so uh, you know, people can can get lost in them and can disappear, can hide almost in, in them. And then I guess the the only the other universities that the figured in, in was Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, which is also in a kind of more Remote remote area. Yeah. It didn't get as affected as the key places where there were real clashes with the police were Chinese Yu, Hong Kong Baptist and Hong Kong poly. Right. Hong Kong Yu, we did have protesters that came and um, occupied parts of the campus. But I can tell you that the campus was never shut down or barricaded or in any way did the protesters, you know, close it down or prevent people from entering. Because I, I went into the campus every day of that difficult week. The makeup of students at Hong
0: Kong University is is, is significant too, right? I mean because if I remember correctly it's like close to half of the students are actually from the mainland.
1: Well, Yes, I mean we. Uh, there is a there is a limit to the number of mainland students that uh, Hong Kong. You, otherwise, if if, if if there were no limit on mainland students, all of the places would be taken by um, right. uh, students from mainland. And of course, the universities have to cater to the Hong Kong community. But let me just give you an example from the residential college where I live, which okay. might give you a kind of idea about it. So I live in one of the residential colleges of the University of Hong Kong. Uh, it's a newer College, uh, so it's really it, it's in a big high-rise uh, tower. We have four hundred and fifty students in that college, and two about two hundred and forty odd are from the mainland. Wow. So they're actually in the majority in in the college. But if you think about it, Hong Kong. Uh, students would generally live at home and would not live in a right, residential, not in college. residential college. Yeah. Right. So it stands to reason that the main- mainlanders would be in the majority. Uh, of of the 450, there are about 95 um, uh, local students, and then the rest will be foreigner, non-mainland foreigners. Wow. So as you can imagine, within this, and it's not—I wouldn't say close con- confines. Although it, you know, in, if you're living in an apartment block, it does sometimes feel that way. Because I live among the students, so I can hear them and see them. I see them every every day in the lift and whatever. But we have to be very sensitive to the fact that it's majority mainlander in in, in the building. And, and with
0: with that, I mean, uh, with the numbers sort of in their favor, are they less afraid? Uh, we've read several reports about Mainlander students fleeing, about Mainlanders fe- feeling on university campuses, feeling sort of physically threatened. Uh, is that not the case at at the at, at University of Hong Kong, at your residential college?
1: Well, uh, let me tell you, let me give you a story. Um, we, we had our first high table. You know, Hong Kong U is very traditional. Uh-huh. It's an English language uh, university. We have some British sort of style traditions. And we had a high table at, at the college. And there were local students who had asked students to turn up in all black for the evening. Now everybody is in formal attire anyway. So all black wasn't really (laughs) all that conspicuous. Now at the end of the dinner, when we were within the high table group was, was processing out, then there were uh, local students that started singing that protest anthem, Glory to Hong Kong. Uh, very low level. And, you know, I think that they were trying to be respectful or trying to be a little bit less, uh, you know, in your face, as it were. Mm-hmm. And it was only once the high table group had left the hall that then they raised their volume and then they started uh, protest, chanting, uh, protest chants. Now, some of the mainland students felt uncomfortable about that. Uh, so you know we had to think about well how do they feel and c- do they feel safe in in the college are uh, there Lenin walls at well that's uh, an, that's one thing for so for example within the college itself we didn't have Lenin walls and we discouraged it and we also would get some protest posters which had to be removed because uh, the language was uh, was if not Hate speech was bordering on it, but in in the common area. So there are four residential colleges uh, in the complex where I am. So in the in the common area, that's the area that's common to all four residential colleges. There was a Lennon wall that sprung up just shortly after the student at Hong Kong UST died. Yeah, it was Alex around that Chow, time. Yeah. Yeah, Alex Chow, and there was nothing we. That, that could really be done I mean I mean in terms of the 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 Len-, the Len wall is there the post-its are there and 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 it's fine um the mainland students are respectful of it I think so there has to be some editing so I know that college authorities do look at the post-its to make sure there isn't any sort of hate speech in in any of them and I believe that those that that, that Cross the line are, are removed. Mm-hmm. So, generally, the, the Lenin Wall is, it, it, and it's a small one. It's not, I mean, if you go to the University of Hong Kong campus itself, you'll see it, it's almost uh, at some point, it, 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 at different points, there was so much graffiti and so much, and it was Lenin Wall from one end of the campus to the other. Um, and that was, um, and some of it was really quite tough. Anti-Mainlander statements and uh, and and really an anti- anti-government graffiti that was troubling to some extent because again we had to remember that it's not just local students on the campus. Right. Um, you would mentioned these family. Uh, what, what did you call them?
0: Family conversations, conversations yeah. uh, with students in the residential college. Uh, tell our listeners about those. What transpired? Uh, maybe give us some.
1: Well, practice. I mean, it's very informal, and I think. The university itself, the, our um, the vice chancellor, the president of the university, who's a Chinese American uh, academic, early on he had a forum, uh, open forum with students and staff to discuss the protest, and it, and it, it it went all right, but uh, you know there were some sort of tense moments, and and the and and there were questions about its effectiveness. So I think the strategy at Hong Kong you and I, you know, I'm not involved I'm not part of senior management so I'm just uh, you know observing this is uh, I think the strategy is to have these smaller conversations in the different residential colleges and halls of residence. So who would be involved in these? Well at where I live we've had a a couple now Uh, we were going to have a third but then of course (laughs) when the term ended uh, the semester ended abruptly it just didn't make sense to have uh, our third one but uh basically we, what we did is we we had just a small gathering we invite students to come by now you know you can't just go up to students and say are you a protester <laughs> right. right so so you just say come and discuss this topic so we did one where we just, just do you want to dis- anybody who wants to discuss what's going on on the streets just come and kind of open mic and 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 we uh we had two former uh civil servants join us and just an open discussion about what was going on. I then actually ran a second one where we themed it Hong Kong's role in the world. Because one of the things that I think is has become obvious is a lot of the protesters who, you know, most of them, um, more than half are, or about half are in their 20s. Uh, and of course, many of the protesters are also uh, secondary school students. So... They're low information young people in the sense that they, they they may not know fully Hong Kong's history or Hong Kong's history with regard to China or even about China's history. They, they may not be so well informed. So one of the things that we wanted to do is have a discussion about Hong Kong's role in Hong Kong's role in the world and how that's changed over you know, the decades, indeed, over the century or so. Um, So we brought in uh, uh, people who could talk to that. Um, For example, I had um, a a former uh, journalist colleague of mine, who's uh, Indian Muslim, but his family has been in Hong Kong for over 130 years. So I guess the subliminal message <laughs> there was that Hong Kong has many different people who've come to uh, settle there for various reasons, and that the role of Hong Kong has changed. You know, in terms of starting out as a trading port to becoming a financial services center to becoming a, uh, uh, a, an education hub, and then of course that we uh, the, the kind of stresses that were. Undergoing right now the 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 protests, the riots, the violence, we actually have experienced that before in the 1960s. And so, uh, one of our guests uh, was able to speak to that because he was living in Hong Kong in 1965, 67, when you had those protests. Mm. And then we were, you know, we we we, we looked forward to. So I, we included. Um, uh, guests of mine, a guest to come who spoke about Hong Kong as an arts and culture hub, which is something new, you know, with the development of the West Kowloon Cultural District. And also, we had uh, somebody to speak about uh, Hong Kong as an innovation center, uh, a center working, you know, uh, developing fourth industrial revolution um, uh, businesses. And and, and and what's the future in terms of Hong Kong's role as a, a center for data analysis, for example? Mm. Um, so, so it, I guess the purpose was to to link Hong Kong and its past to what's going on now, in in part to reassure our students, uh, reassure people that this is not something that it, it, there, there are special circumstances to what's going on today, but. But certainly Hong Kong has been through these stresses before and worked them out. And people have moved on and Hong Kong embraced new roles and changed. And people didn't dwell in some ways on the difficulties of the past, but did look forward. And that's kind of the, the sentiment we wanted to, to bring. Not to ignore what was going, what's going on, but to to, to connect. That And give some hope because I think one of the problems that doesn't get reported, one of the issues that doesn't get reported in, in Hong Kong these days is the issue of mental health, the stresses that many of the young people are facing. Yeah, I can imagine. And indeed, everybody in the community is facing because you know, the hardest part of the day for many people, I mean, like myself, in some ways is that... Is if we're at work. What do you do when you go home, or when you at the end of the day? Where are the protests, and do you go observe? Do you go? Uh, what do you do for the evening? If, if when does the MTR shut down? All I mean, daily life has has been affected for sure, and it has affected. It, it's added to people's uh, stress levels, but certainly, you know, with the young people themselves. I mean, the stress, uh, the, the the stresses they face the protesters um one of the things that the um, asia global institute uh, where i work during that difficult week we had a um, a conflict resolution expert from one of our fellows who went out among the students to uh, he's from africa uh, went and, and and had a chat with with some of the students and put together a, a, a short report about you know the the state of mental health among the young people and in many of the some of the protesters were were very young, secondary school students. So fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. You know, the youngest protester arrested has only been has been 11, was eleven years old. Right. Anyway, the the conclusion that uh, my colleague came up with was that, that a lot of the young people are feeling. Well, you know, they're not eating well. They're not sleeping. They're sleep deprived. Many of them are concerned that they're not doing their schoolwork, they're questioning about their future, but also most of them, many of them, have broken with their families. Some of their families didn't even know they were protesting. And that must add to the pressures they're under. And frankly, universities like Hong Kong U are are not all that well-equipped to deal with the mental stresses that young people face. But I feel that the mental health issue is one way that we can have communications between, with, with uh, the protesters, with young people. And this is what I, I guess, what I think it gets lost, particularly in the coverage by the media of the protests, is, well, where have there been instances of, of communication? And Hong Kong U, I think, is a good story. And I, I, again, I don't. I, if I can go into this just uh, uh, briefly, is um, you know, as I mentioned, Hong Kong U was never closed off. My colleagues and I we were able to go in and out of the campus. There were some of the roads were blocked, but uh, you could go around the blocks. And then the main street outside uh, the campus was was blocked for a period. But again, um, there were no clashes between police and uh, protesters. The reason for that really was because the senior management at the university communicated with the protesters who were there and communicated with the police, and they ensured that the police were not, and, and they didn't have any intention to uh, invade or to enter the campus, and they agreed not to do so, and the protesters were sort of much calmer as a result. mm <laughs> It got to a head, though, because the protesters had blocked this main road, Pokfulam Road, that provides the main access to university. The road is the main access to the um, Queen Mary Hospital, which Mm is an important place for uh, elderly people to go to get medical treatment. And there are a lot of elderly who live around the university, so it was getting very difficult, untenable, to have this road blocked. Now, the university... In communicating with the protesters, they came. There was some agreements to have clearing. They didn't. That didn't happen. And then, all, um, and then, pro-China, pro-police groups said, "We're going to come in and remove the barricades." And there was a lot of concern. There was going to be a clash, just like what was happening in Chinese U and poly U and and Baptist U. How did that get diffused? Um, well, this is the this is the good story that I think has a lot of lessons, is that these pro-China, pro-police groups turned up, but so did residents from the area. And so it didn't come off as a, a an anti protester group. The, it was residents in the area, older people who came to clear up the streets. Now the protesters got Upset, and they started throwing things at them. And but the numbers just grew in a way that made it um, senseless for them to continue to throw these. Some they weren't throwing Molotov cocktails; they were throwing sort of pieces of wood and stone and things like that. And finally, the protesters just let the cleanup happen. There was a tense moment when a police van happened to come by. Not coming to do anything in, at the campus, but it just was passing by. And the protesters threw a stone at the van, and the van stopped, and police came out, and it looked like there then might have been a clash between protesters and police, but that was generally diffused by the administration, university administration officials who were there, who had been talking to the uh, protesters. And that's, again, the lesson there is if there's communication... Right. If there's interaction with the protesters, okay, they're leaderless, but don't let that be an excuse not to have some kind of communication with whomever you can speak to, whomever wants to have communication. And there was a very tense moment where one of the deans was able to get a very young uh, secondary school student protester in full mask and everything to agree to go home. And, um, and he had, he had Molotov cocktails at the ready, but, but he, he, he decided that uh, he would stand down. And that's a great story. And that's, I think, since, is an indication of how we possibly could bring the temperatures down, mm. find those kinds of even very small opportunities for interaction between educators and protesters, between civil society groups and and, and the young people, between even just ordinary concerned citizens. Right. You say this is one of the
0: things that the, the media in Hong Kong, or presumably the Western media as well, hasn't really covered very well. I mean, there are other issues that you you have problems with in terms of the coverage. But let me maybe as a lead into that, what is your understanding of the motivations of the protests? I think to a certain extent most people know what the ingredients are, but maybe they differ in the proportions. I mean people would say there are, of course, noble democratic aspirations, there are economic anxieties, there's fear of political repression, there's Frankly, there's bigotry against uh, mainlanders. Um, what, t- to you, are the dominant strains in here, and what is being played down too much or played up too much in media coverage?
1: That's a very tough question. I mean, I, I think for sure the socioeconomic factors are there. I mean, there's a lot of talk lately about the housing issue, of course, about the job opportunities and and those kinds of issues. I personally don't think that the housing issue is really very paramount. Remember that that we're talking about predominantly middle-class young people who are pretty comfortable by Hong Kong standards. Okay, they may live in sort of cramped conditions, and you have that phenomenon of, um, you know, that you have in New York and expensive cities like urban poor, as it were, you know, you could be middle class, but you're, you're, you're still feeling the pinch and, and doubtless, uh, many of them are like that. So they're sort of over half in their 20s. And then mostly, actually, I think it's, it's quite high middle class. It's a it, it, it's probably right. 60, 70% middle class.
0: So uh, Beijing has played this factor up, you think, way too much.
1: I wouldn't say Beijing is 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 playing the fact trap. I think in many ways the media focuses on this that it's you know it's about housing and then the government uh, you know has also said oh right. a lot of it is about housing because a lot of the measures that the government has introduced so far have to do with housing. But as someone said to me, you know, you're not going to go and throw a Molotov cocktail for lower rent, right? And, and uh, it, it, it's something deeper than that. And in my understanding, you know, my conversations with some of my students and with uh, people um, uh, that I know who are involved in the movement, it really is about the concern that the Hong Kong way of life is changing in a way that will be irreparable, irreversible. And that has to do with freedoms, freedoms of expression, the ability to have the vote, you know, the the level of democracy that we have today, uh, whatever the apocalyptic kind of language that the protesters use, you know, Hong Kong is not a police state right now. Hong Kong is not sort of a Chi-Nazi state. You know, I mean, the protesters use that kind of apocalyptic language. But, they wouldn't be able to do what they're doing if we were living in a kind of police state. I grew up in Philippines under Marcos, and we could not do any of what the protesters are, are, are doing now. That said, I think that there's great fear about uh, the, the sort of walls closing in. And, of course, then that means the focus is China. And I think that that's it, it you know, the, the, the main beef, if you will, is with China's ru- way of administering, China's way of ruling Hong Kong. and It's all very opaque because we, we don't really know what the Hong Kong government can or cannot do. We don't really know what the Hong Kong government says to Beijing or doesn't say to Beijing. We don't know what the Beijing... Officials who are in Hong Kong, the liaison office, what they say or know—I mean, all of the, the the interaction between Hong Kong and 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 Beijing is is very opaque and, and very difficult to understand. China's
0: impact isn't purely political, though. it no, isn't it, just curbs on freedom either, yeah. right? So. Well,
1: and then this gets into what your what you mentioned this this issue of bigotry. Now, I. I, I hesitate sometimes to use that to, to use that term to go so far. I mean, I think that there's a kind of there is definitely a nativist streak to this protest, and that gets sort of underappreciated, underreported, and it's not an it's not an pro independence movement, as it will, because I think there are very very few people who are really seeking or un, or believe that Hong Kong can have independence. It really is. A uh, concern about the Hong Kong identity, whatever that might be, or is what, however that is construed, and that the Hong Kong identity uh, is, is somehow being lost or swamped in a, a city where more and more mainlanders are coming to live, where you hear uh, Putonghua quite a, a lot more now than you did ten years ago. And the landscape has changed. So particularly if you go, I mean, many people are familiar, of course, with the Central Business District, and you see how a lot of the stores in, in Central and the shopping malls have become these sort of ultra-high-end luxury boutiques which cater mainly to mainland shoppers. But it's more it's more evident the impact of... The mainland is more evident once you go up to the border areas, and you see how even shops there in the new territories and in the area in the borders uh, with Shenzhen, how many of the shops have have changed and become like jewelry shops that cater to the mainlanders, or and then also situation where mainlanders come to to get. Uh, uh, diapers or baby formula because they don't trust what they get b- baby formula they, they get in the mainland and that's changed the tenor i guess the the atmosphere in those areas and that's affected a lot of people uh so so I guess all of that comes into the mix where you get you know all you, you get more more mainlands around and 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 then you you add in the ingredient of the socioeconomic ingredient where younger people are finding that they may not have the same opportunities that their older brothers and sisters had like, five, 10 years ago. Again, anecdotally, when I was teaching, I used to teach um, international business and gold management students. I used to run a leadership development program in the l- last semester of their last year. And I would start the semester by asking my students, and I would usually have thirty or forty students in this class. Um, who among them had already locked in a job for when they get the, got their degree? And when I first started teaching that course in the beginning, I was teaching ten years. Everybody would raise their hands. They all had job offers already, and you know. In the latter years before I moved to Ottawa, when I would ask the same question, it would be down to maybe uh, two or three or four uh, wow. of them who ha- having job offers. I mean, they, they would all norm- generally have jobs by the time they graduated, but, but it was less certain. And, and so w- when you add this question about Hong Kong identity, the more pr- greater presence of mainland, and then questions about opportunity it all adds up and I just add one one last uh, story here is I have I had many mainland students and uh, and I, I had one mainland student in in my leadership course she got her degree and then she her international business management degree and she got a job in Hong Kong with a major accounting firm and then she got hit by a truck and died now no. When that happened it made news because of course you know death and traffic is, is news uh, but when it was when it was reported that she was from the mainland and had worked for this major accounting firm on social media there were more than one might expect more than a few people who said good riddance you know you took a job from from Hong Kong people so it's there I mean I, I'm not saying that this is, Prevalent. I'm just saying that there is that that kernel of of anti-mainland sentiment. That I I don't think it's bigotry. I I think it's more. Uh, it's not unlike what you have in the United States, where there are fears about immigrants and. Isn't in that bigotry? States. Well, yes, but I mean, I'm I'm not.
0: Xenophobia.
1: I I I. I you know it's not it's xenophobia maybe a better uh, but but it's not but even that because is, you know z- xenophobia means almost strangers these are almost like people just like yourself right and i think that 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 adds to, the, to the, the the stress, the fact that these are Chinese people right. who are coming here into your backyard. It's tougher and, to otherize and, them. Exactly. And, and so, and, and you know, it's not really racism in the sense. No, it's it, certainly not. It, the yeah. same race, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah,
0: so. yeah that's tough. Uh, I want to shift quickly. Um, you wrote an op-ed about the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act for the SCMP. Uh, and expressed many of the same opinions about that I have and I have been very frustrated at it and how a little attention uh Susan Thornton wrote a similar op-ed decrying it for for pretty much the same reasons although one thing that you add to to your your criticism of that I thought that was very insightful is that this legislation coupled with you know uh how Huawei and ever and, and several important Chinese AI companies are being you know placed on the entity list um uh, how it would damage Hong Kong's access to technology if the nuclear option were invoked. So yeah. if they started treating Hong Kong like any other Chinese city, they too would fall under punitive measures that have been taken against China in this sort of emerging tech cold war.
1: Yes. I think that you know this is going could be a big problem for Hong Kong because the way I see it is the Human Rights and Democracy Act is essentially setting up the eventual withdrawal by the United States of its recognition of Hong Kong's special stat- status. Well, that's really the one thing that it, it yes. allows the U.S. to do. <laughs> yes. Now, as I say, one country, two systems really depends not just on the relationship between, between the mainland and Hong Kong, but the recognition that other jurisdictions give to accepting that one country, that's two right. systems exists. That's right. And And, and so... The United States, of course, is the most important of those other uh, players uh, involved. Now, if you have a situation where you have all of these congressmen ba- basically, you know, listening, frankly, only to Joshua Wong and um, Nathan uh, Law, yeah. uh, uh, you know, the, the protesters, uh, and 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 accepting pretty much everything that they they're saying which is that there's no autonomy hong kong has no autonomy that they're living in a police state this apocalyptic view of of hong kong today then you know it's an, it seems to me inevitable that we'll get to a point where when you have the first assessment by the state department of the level of autonomy of hong kong will the state department have any other choice other than to say hong kong no longer enjoys the high degree of autonomy that it's supposed to have under the basic law. And if that happens, then what what does that lead to? Now, partly it could lead to these Magnitsky sanctions against individuals who are participating in the curta- curtailing of freedoms of Hong Kong people, but it could very well lead to the withdrawal of status. Refundition, Exactly. Yeah. Now, what does that mean? It means that many things that Hong Kong does as a result of one country, two systems, as a result of that special status could disappear. Something as simple as the security pre-clearance of containers before coming from Hong Kong to the United States. That's, that's a, a intelligence and security information exchange. If that's no longer possible, then how does that work? Another thing is the technology that you mentioned. So universities may not in Hong Kong may not be able to work, particularly in STEM areas, with universities in the United States that would severely diminish the status of uh, the institutions of higher learning in, in, in Hong Kong. If, for example, Hong Kong right now is is unique in that it's one of the it is probably the only place in the world where data flows coming from the West are allowed in and and used and analyzed as well as data coming from the mainland. and and you can have mixing of data from the west and data from the mainland.
0: yeah, that's a really unique position. It's a
1: unique yeah. position, and that would could be lost. For example, I know of an entrepreneur who is in the pharmaceutical business. Uh, He's from Hong Kong but has an entity in in Shenzhen that does the research and development. But once they identify a new molecule that they want to patent or that they want to get approval from the U.S. FDA, they can't do it with the Shenzhen entity because it's a non-starter from a Chinese entity applying. So what they do is they transfer the IP to their Hong Kong entity. And it's the Hong Kong entity that applies and the application is treated normally. And uh, so a lot of that could very well disappear. And that would essentially mean that the bottom line would be a lot of opportunities for young people, including in very cutting edge areas, such as technology and pharmaceuticals and healthcare could disappear. And then the universities could be compromised. And then that, again, would would limit opportunities for young people. So from that perspective, I really worry about what the uh, impact of the Human Rights and Democracy Act yeah, uh,
0: yeah, could I be. Yeah, completely agree with you there. Um, let's talk about Beijing's response to the crisis so far. What have been their big mistakes? What opportunities have they missed? And what, if anything, have they actually done right?
1: Well, I think the main thing that they've probably done, they've done right is to really do not all that much. Look, there's a lot of, the protests have a lot of geopolitical cover. That's the way I put it. You have the US China trade war. You had October 1, the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. You had the district council elections in November in Hong Kong. You have the Taiwan elections in January. So, and you can even go further into the future. A lot of disincentives
0: for Beijing to... Exactly.
1: The Winter Olympics in 2022. I mean, does Beijing, would Beijing want to get into the international doghouse... Um, at this point, if they did anything drastic, if there was some kind of, you know, and I know there are those in the media that kind of uh, expect a kind of Tiananmen 2.0, and it's, I, I find that really worrisome. But and, well, we and, need the,
0: the season finale to be really. Well, that's dramatic. it. And, and, right.
1: and you know, it's, uh, the media sometimes you think they want blood. I, I, I hate to say it. I mean, as a journalist, uh, a former journalist myself, I, I do feel some, that sometimes that's what the media is looking for. And it's a bit sad to watch. But in any case, Beijing understands, I think, that there's a lot to lose if they intervene in some way, in any way that's, you know, in terms of putting down the protests. Just look at the example of um, when the um, PLA troops came out in T-shirts and shorts and helped with the cleanup, and how that was treated with great controversy. That, was, that became quite controversial, though people say, oh, this is... Some people horrified by it and other people saying, you know, how... how again, you know, Beijing, in, in the eyes of many of those supporting the protests, can't do anything right. And the Hong Kong government can't do anything right. And there's, everything is, you know, is, is is awful. The police are doing everything wrong. And, and uh, so I think by being restrained, that's probably uh, the best course of action. Now, the question is, is there something that they... Should be doing that maybe they're not doing right, right. now um, in terms of. Now, I think that that you know it's very difficult to to assess that, mainly because, as I mentioned before, you know the relationship with the Hong Kong government and the Beijing uh, and Beijing is is very opaque. So we don't really know what the dynamics of that are. Now, I mean, one do you of have the sort demands, of
0: operating thesis do you do you believe as many do that Hong Kong does nothing without Beijing's express consent?
1: See, I think yes, in, in, in certain spheres. So so uh, in, in this particular episode, I would imagine that if, for example, we, 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 everybody wants to know, well, why doesn't Carrie Lam, why doesn't she just agree to have the independent commission of inquiry into police violence? Now, one aspect of that is that she can't just have it on about police violence. You'd have to have it about violence in general, related to the protests and whether it's police or anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that would just be a politically uh, sensitive yeah. thing that she would have to do. But um, I, I would imagine one of the reasons why uh, she can't move on this is because she has to get Beijing's approval. Now, that may be uh, one of the things that. That, that Beijing should allow to happen, whether whether or not I think we're 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 at a point where whether or not one believes that such an independent commission would be a fool's errand or too difficult to do, or for whatever reasons that those who have been against the idea I think that you you know it would be very difficult for anybody, like any judge or whomever is put in charge of this independent inquiry to actually get anything done that would be accepted by. Uh, By all sides, Um, whatever you think about the wisdom of it, I think we're at a point where granting this demand, or at least acceding to some kind of independent commission, would probably help significantly in bringing down the temperature, and maybe more useful than the trouble it may it may cause. Right, right. Uh, I would agree, and, and and that's the sort of thing that I think Beijing has to really think deeply about now. It may be that they're waiting for the Taiwan election to to finish up uh, in January and, and 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 some other sort of milestones that they want to get by, or that they're playing this waiting game, you know, with with the violence mounting up. And you you talked about that that the hope is that public support for 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 the protests may uh, may diminish uh, further, and 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 that may be true. I mean, that's kind of what happened with five years ago with Occupy uh after seventy nine days, uh the support for the occupation, the protest uh, for the movement had, had had really uh plunged. And uh, but I think it's it's somewhat different at this point, uh in the sense that I think that there is we, we, we've we've gone quite a long time, it's over six months now. And and the support is, is 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 significant. However, you slice it, uh, uh, maybe not for the violence, but for the sense that Hong Kong needs to preserve its values, its way of life, the democracy that we enjoy still, and 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 that that's a, a, a quite a prevalent sentiment. Now, if I were my hopeful side, um, I hope that we may get a political solution. And one idea that some people have talked about, I I think it's possible, even though there are many who doubt it. Five years ago, Beijing offered a political reform package, which would have granted universal suffrage direct election for the chief executive, but with a nominating committee that would vet candidates and then select only two or three candidates to run. This was deemed unacceptable in 2014. The, in was. 2014 by the pro democracy groups, and, and in the legislature, they voted it down. And the proposal was withdrawn with the caveat with, with, with the government then saying, we're not going to bring up political reform for a while. And most by most accounts, even among the pro democracy camp, that was a mistake to have turned it down because we, you know, in some ways they let the they went for all or nothing. L- they let not the nothing. good yeah. be they, they let perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Right. And um, and and, and I was disappointed. Look, as a as a p- voter in Hong Kong, permanent resident who votes, and I voted in every election that I can. Um, I would have liked to have had the opportunity to vote, uh, even with the limited. Slate candidates, uh, you know. candidates. Now, look, the nominating committee is allowed under the basic law. And the, the pro-democracy folks didn't even get to a point where we, we, they, they didn't even think about, well, there could have been negotiations for how you constitute that nominating committee. Right. That's that. That, that the is. the nominating committee negotiable. is there in the basic law. It is, it's- yes. Now, in the Sino-British Joint Declaration, there's no mention of universal suffrage. So, so you know, we, we have to go by the facts. In basic law, yes, uh, the, it, it's it's stated in there, uh, universal suffrage direct election for the chief executive and the um, legislative council. And, yeah. um, and, and I, I think that there may be room for perhaps Beijing to come back and say, look, maybe we Let's try offer this again thing. this right. package, the same package. You accept it, but that won't be the end. In other words... You can accept it, and then we'll have further discussions of, of how, what further reforms c- could be possible. I, I think this is politically possible. I may be naive about it. Many people think that I tend to be naive <laughs> about these things, but I, I, I do think it's possible. And I think that if it were offered again, many in the pro-democracy camp would, would accept it. Well, clearly,
0: you, you, you are optimistic. You have some faith in the resilience of Hong Kong. You were talking about it when in the family conversation that you convened that you had brought in people to talk about uh, how Hong Kong was able to bounce back from episodes of, of pretty apocalyptic violence in 65 and 67. So what is your prognosis right now? If you were to look at, at Hong Kong in five years out, 10 years out, what do you see right now? Do you, do you see scenarios where Hong Kong is able to maintain its place as a very important financial and increasingly maybe a, a data hub for the region?
1: Yes. Um <laughs> I I'm quite confident. Um look, what what is the worst case scenario? I think I I don't buy that there we're we're heading towards some kind of Tiananmen 2.0. There'll be a heavy military style military crackdown. I, I don't think that's in the offing. You know, I w- within two minutes walk of my office, there's an entire building full of PLA troops and their families. So at any given time, you have about six thousand plus uh, PLA troops uh, based in Hong Kong. Uh, Look, they they can take it. They they could have taken over, or take or, or taken control a long time ago, and they haven't. And and I I don't think, uh, unless the protests result in really serious violence that require that the police can't handle, then I don't think we're heading towards that. I, I think it's possibly the worst case scenario as some have suggested that Hong Kong ends up like Belfast. You know, I felt rather sad some weeks ago when. Um, uh, the MTR entrances near my where I live were all boarded up uh, with metal plates and blocking the the glass that brought light into the station. And I just thought, well, I never went to Belfast. I've never been to Belfast, but I just I I just made me think that is this going to become a permanent feature, which would be very disappointing if 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 many of our buildings are all sort of clad in metal and things like that. And I. I I, again, I don't think that scenario is is probable. I think that we'll eventually get to some kind of a political solution. But at the moment, I have to be frank, and I don't see the exit ramps yet. I'm seeing more community activity, you know, the civil society groups, that are are motivated. I think I know a, a group that's trying to create dialogue centers across the community. They're trying to get funding for those things. We're trying to do these very small conversations. Again, and it's not just me, but I mean, as I say, colleagues at, at the universities are all trying to have these conversations. Um, different groups are, are, are trying to do it. Um, we need to bring the temperature down and, and, and somehow... Convince the more radical groups of the what I call the audacity of patience. That the brave thing is to have some patience at this point. One of the more moving scenes during that week of difficulties on campus was at Hong Kong U. It, it appeared on social media. It was video of oh, one of the bridges, one of the areas that connect Hong Kong U with the uh, with the MTR and protesters had been throwing stones and other debris down at people. And I think, I guess they didn't think that even if you throw a small stone from a great height, it could actually kill someone. <laughs> and so the acting, in fact, Dean of the law faculty came out to talk to his students and tried to get them to sort of stand down. And uh, Fu Hwa Ling, he's from the mainland Fu Hwa Ling, and uh, the acting dean and so, in some ways, quite brave of him as a mainlander to to go out there. And maybe not many people appreciated that. And, of course, he can't speak Cantonese, so he's speaking in English. And he, I think, had the presence of mind. He brought one of the his predecessors as dean, Ioannis Chan, who's a kind of iconic right. pro-democracy uh, figure. So the two of them trying to convince the protesters to stand down. And, and Hualing said something, I think, that was... Was very important. He said to the protesters, "You know, you're better than this. Come back to University of Hong Kong as students, and and you can change the world that way." But and then he said, "Achieving democracy is not a five month project. It's a work of a lifetime." And um, those were not his exact words, but that's basically what he said. And and I, I think that that's the sort of thing, you know. Can we overcome the kind of fear and lack of confidence, the worries about opportunities that the young people have? Rightly so, because, I mean, you know, they live in in a society and a system that people my age and older created, I think, or developed at least, and so, you know, it's hard to blame them for the way they feel. But can we convince them of the audacity of patience, that they should have some kind of patience and work as hard as possible to grasp the opportunities that they have. Many of my students do. For them, you know, Hong Kong is not just their world. They, they, they look beyond Hong Kong. They look at the mainland as a place for them to have opportunities, to pursue opportunities. And many of them look at the entire world as a place to pursue opportunities. And that's the kind of mindset issue, challenge that we have in Hong Kong, is that I think that there's, in recent years, there's been far too much sort of inward looking among our young people. And that, again, no fault of their own. I think it has to do with uh, education, with upbringing, with many issues. And you have to get beyond the idea that China's uh, the mainland's as sort of an adversary, and get beyond the idea that you know. That, I mean, if there's one immutable thing here, it's that Hong Kong is part of China. That will not change. That can't be changed. And get beyond all of that and the uncertainties, the fear, the lack of confidence, uh, and and think about well, what are the opportunities? And yes, it, it may be difficult to get to any kind of full flowering of democracy that we might hope for but the reality is that hong kong can only go so fast as china allows it uh, i mean that's the that's the fact that's the that's that that's something we cannot go faster than the mainland will let us and 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 that has to be the reality
0: al thanks so much for taking the time to chat uh, it was a, a delight Let's move on to recommendations, but so first let me remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best way that you can support our work is to subscribe to SupChina's daily newsletter. This thing is just chock full of great reads all about China, delivered to your inbox every weekday. Jeremy, Lucas, Jiayun, and now Anthony, working on the newsletter as well, really work very hard to uh, bring you this amazing product, and it's 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 Wonderful value for money. So sign up and spread the word. Now on to recommendations. Al, what do you have for us?
1: Well, I'm going to get, uh, choose something from uh, sub-China oh, because really uh, I was right. quite moved by uh, reading um, Yang Yang Chang's piece. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, talking to my mother about Hong Kong, in large part because um, even though she, you know, she likens the she. It uh, likens the relationship of mainland and Hong Kong to the relationship she has with her mother and then also all the dynamics between her mother and herself as they communicate by email and her concerns about her mother and her mother's concerns for her. Quite moving, but what, I, what the reason why it resonated well with me is that it, it didn't even just have to be about Hong Kong and China. I mean, I felt many of those... Issues, many of those concerns, many of those emotions, when I was living in the United States and my parents were still in the Philippines, and we were living with the Marcos regime, and and so you know it, it's a long piece, but well worth it. And and gosh, uh, I spread it around. Um, oh, good, good, good. Yeah, we
0: we uh, have her actually on this week's episode of the show. We we talked to her. We uh, show that we taped live. At uh, our next China conference uh, earlier in October.
1: I recommend it for for everybody. The other thing that I would recommend is Sasha Baron Cohen speaking about social media. Yeah. Google it.
0: That's really good.
1: I've seen that. I really recommend those two things in the last few weeks have really affected me. Uh, I I think they're very important to, to read and to watch.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to recommend a book that I'm um, maybe only a third of the way through, but already just just really enjoying it. Uh, It's Timothy Weingart's book, The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. Uh, If you're a sucker for, as I am, I I love sort of pop science books, um, things that zoom in on one. uh, It's not a science book, really. It's a a history book. Zoom in on, on like, Kurlansky does with cod or with salt or... or, um, (laughs) That's another. Or or the great book by um, Charles Mann uh, about the Columbian Exchange, or or the the better uh, Jared Diamond books. It's of that ilk. Uh, Lots of fun to read, and it just takes you on some pretty wild tangents that you you never really thought about. The mosquito having been a a vital piece of. So really enjoying this, and um, if anyone has other books of that ilk they can recommend to me, I'm always up for reading something like that. So. Thanks a lot, Al. It was just great to have you here. Um, welcome to North Carolina. Thank you, Kaiser. Uh, let's I go eat some it. barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. And, uh,
0: good luck with your talk today. Yes,
1: Thank you. Cheers.
0: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, The Caixin Seneca Business Brief, The Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and ta The Middle Earth Podcast on the culture industry in China, and Strangers in China. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.